Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Thank you so much for joining us here in Chicago Capital. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. You know, I think there's a lot of unique things about 112 Ventures, which I'm so excited to talk about today. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and your path to venture capital. Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, um, I I started in uh, I started in biotech actually uh, with Baxter and. Um, was working in, you know, the sales and marketing group, uh, selling blood therapy products, hospital supply. And it was really fascinating. I think Baxter taught me what world-class is all about, right? And how do you take care of customers and, and sell to large organizations where the care of the customer is the intention and the customer being the patient? I had the opportunity then to move into uh, into tech and outsourcing, and so I was working for. I started at MCI, which I'm, I'm now putting a pin in in the 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 time frames here, uh, which was acquired by uh, Worldcom, uh, which is now uh, Verizon, and then I moved to EDS and was doing these big glass house outsourcing deals at a time when outsourcing was the thing, right? It was the cool new business process innovation. And I've been fortunate in, in somehow having transferable skills or the ability to understand things through a framework. So as I, as I stayed in you know, this, this tech and this big giant outsourcing company, I had the opportunity to IPO uh, and IPO the largest telecom IPO in 1999 and then get acquired again by British Telecom. Uh, so it was just this really interesting uh, progression across industries and, and you know, spaces and, and different business models as they were progressing. But what happened inevitably was I found myself at a company called uh, Vertella, which was a Norwest Venture Partners portfolio company. And that was when I got my first taste of, um, of venture. And what was fascinating about it was, you know, when you're in the corporation, you get to see everything from, you know, the value and the product out and the framework for building companies is really what got me hooked in venture. And so in 2012, um, I left corporate, uh, started uh, a handful of companies and then eventually realized that there was this really interesting disconnect between being a founder and being a funder. And the two really need each other, which is an understatement. Um, but that was where this venture builder studio model really took, uh, took form. And so in 2016, I created K8 Ventures, and which then has, uh, has been part of the journey to get to 11.2 Ventures. So hopefully that's not going too far back. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. And I think it's it's an interesting background too, because you do have such an extensive experience in sales specifically. Um, I would love to hear about how you feel that sort of uh, that experience in sales, all that time you spent in that role, how that transferred to the role of a venture capitalist, to the role of a funder. I think it's a, it's a, it's a part of the job that 
many people looking to break into the industry probably don't realize is so important and so essential. So I'm curious to get your perspective as somebody who's who's probably the most uh, experienced sales uh, person that we've had on this show to date. Oh, cool. Well, so at the end of the day, there's a couple different problems, right? Can you build something that anyone cares about? You do that, and that's that's one third of the way, right? Uh, then can you get it to market, right? And you've got this great product, but if you can't get it into someone's hands so that they even have the chance to buy it, then that's a problem. And the gap, or at least the structuring between product market fit and their awareness or need latent or explicit is really where sales comes along, right? Because at, ultimately, at the end of the day, whether you have a nonprofit or an ESG company that's trying to change the world, or you're just out there selling a good old SaaS product, you have to figure out how to be that intersection and communicate value in the, in the way that the, the client or the customer um, understands it digitally or not. And, and sales is, um, sales is a, a pretty interesting thing because you know, it used to have a pretty bad rap. And at the end of the day, if you can't sell it, then that's a problem, right? And so to have those skills and to have that experience and to be able to communicate how to do that is, I think, a, a pretty special element of what is uh, needed for a founding team. Yeah, it's such a great comment about sales getting a, a bad rap. It's funny. I, I spent a year as a salesperson, credit salesperson at B of A, and I think I have a class at business school uh, called Entrepreneurial Selling. And we talk a lot about how, you know, I think there's some statistic out there. I want to say, don't quote me, but something like 70% of all roles uh, in the United States, for example, are either explicit sales or non-sales selling. So, so your actual role, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis is essentially sales, but you just don't want to go, you know, you don't want to go by the moniker of a salesperson. So, so I think it's so interesting and it's a great point. I think also such a big part of sales is storytelling. And, uh, you know, you yourself are a very experienced storyteller. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background as an author, because again, you're the only author that I've had on this show. So would love to hear about that passion and where that came from and, and how that fits in, I guess, to your, to your career journey. You know, both of my parents met at the Art Institute. Uh, my father's of Swedish descent. My mother is, in, is, um, is from Mumbai. And when, so I was born in Mumbai, moved to Sweden. I didn't move there. My parents took me there. And we came uh, to the U.S. when I was about six. And what was fascinating was I didn't speak any English. Uh, actually, Swedish was my first language. And why this is relevant is because it, I think, gave me this implicit ingrained questioning. Why are we doing it this way? Why is it done this way? Why is that thing cool? And why is this thing not cool? Right. And, and so growing up with that, both um, the, my parents being artists and really having a boundaryless view of what's possible, right? You didn't need to be a practitioner to attempt to think about it or to attempt to do something with it. And then that interrogation of why as just part of the DNA really um, gets to the heart of what's important, right? There's the position and the, the intention. And when we think about intentions, what's really under the surface, why are we really doing these things? We get back to this, the human condition and the human condition is Shakespearean. The greatest companies that are out there 
are in some way, shape or form addressing things that are always part of it. Love, loneliness, happiness, health, you know, building a business so that you can hand it down to your, your kids or your family or just sheer ambition, right? Like all of those things are part of what I think is a founder's narrative that's so incredibly important. I think as we look at science fiction, which is a, a big um, focus of mine uh, and, and passion, you know, when you when you dial it back and you go to the old Star Treks and they flip open this communicator and they're looking at each other, first of all, it's a flip phone. So like, really, that's not that futuristic. But second of all, it's video right? Like everyone is just on video case in point with this podcast and how these things that are 50 years in, in the future as a dream today are, are showing up on the horizon faster than we can think about it. 11.2 uh, ventures is uh, 11.2. That number is the kilometers per second needed to get from sea level into orbit. And the idea is innovation, right? going from whatever old we were going to, to something new, um, disrupting with the venture builder studio model. And I think also dreaming, right? Like these stories, you know, when you, when you think about storytelling, if I tell you a story about how perfect my day was, so what, right? Like everyone would like to have that, but, but the characters that we love are the ones that have really horrible <laughs> circumstances. Luke Skywalker got his hand cut off by his dad, right? Like that's interesting. <laughs> that's the story. It's so much to unpack there, but immediately my mind goes to, you know, that, that theme of adversity and the hero's journey. And I think in some level, it almost makes sense to me that people who are engaged in entrepreneurship have to believe they're on some kind of hero's journey. It's, it's the stories that we all tell ourselves, and I think especially entrepreneurs who are just taking the biggest risks in societies, in society, aside from people who are, you know, putting themselves in bodily harm and, 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 you know, those types of professions. But I think it is interesting. It is, I do see a correlation between, between the world of sci-fi, the world of storytelling and the hero's journey and kind of the entrepreneurial journey. And, mm -hmm. you know, for, for you, what were some of the great works of science fiction? I think, you know, you mentioned Star Trek, but any other ones that, you know, you loved growing up or you love to this day that, that, that really still captivates you and, and motivates you? Oh, I mean, for sure, Isaac Asimov and Foundation, right? Uh, I mean, like that's that platform. And then um, Heinlein. I mean, like the, there's just something different about the science fiction that was written in those days because they had so much less to work with that they really had to think about not the they didn't have the superficial to think about, right? Like, oh, we're going at light speed. Well, that's great. But what does that mean? Why? Back to that question, why? And so because they didn't have science, hadn't really filled in the words for these things that they were writing about, they really had to think about what the societal impacts of any sort of innovation would look like. And that I think is what makes them special is that, you know, they're not, they're not the pulp fiction, actually some of them were, but they had, they had a, 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 another two levels of thought below that, which made it timeless. Yeah. I mean, this is totally off track, but I, I'm curious about, it sounds to me almost as if science fiction can sometimes provide and, and the creativity that goes into that almost a blueprint for society to try and catch up with in terms of innovation, in terms of, you know, finding new products and, and, you know, going to outer space, 
I'm curious if you feel the same way that that works of art have have a a really lasting impact on on the societal sort of belief of what is possible. And if you think that's something that is still here today, and if you think that's just something that will always be sort of intricate or intrinsic to science, science fiction's value to society. Well, I mean, as we think of, you know, science fiction, one definition of magic or science fiction is just what we don't know yet right? A sufficiently sophisticated and advanced technology would appear to be magic to us or would appear to be science fiction to us because we just don't know what it is, right? And when we look at innovation and we look at, you know, this, the, the, the people who have a dream, whether it's to make a million or to change the world or, or you know, disrupt a whole new way of, of communicating, right? Um, at some point, at some level, there's a spark of, you know, is this possible? Could I actually do this? Could we actually do this? And, and for that, that spark, that kind of addiction to answering that question, I think is, it feeds to belief, it feeds to the determination of the entrepreneur, of the team around the entrepreneur, that relentless pursuit of trying to answer that question. That would be how I how I would see you know and and one more point you know I I had when I wanted to get grounded as a kid, I would tell my parents that there's no such thing as art. That in the old days we hadn't really thought you know it was a painting that was art, but now we have so many different mediums that rely on all of the different disciplines of art. Could Apple in its early incarnations be had those early designs? Could they have been considered art? Can a spreadsheet, can a business model be considered art, right? And so if we think of creativity as the synthesis of these non-correlated uh, or heretofore non-correlated potentials, and then the synthesis of that is the creativity, then you know the definition of art for me has, has changed a little bit, right? And I look around at these innovators and how they're putting themselves out there and, uh, you know, on, on some levels, that is art and creation, right? Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I, this is a topic of conversation I could go down for hours. I, I would love to maybe focus a bit on 11.2 for now and, and hear a bit more about the model there, you know, and, and if you could explain to listeners, you know, how you're different from other VC funds and, you know, what a venture builder studio really is at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So in corporate, you know, I've, I've launched companies into new markets, gotten products into new markets. And when you look at the process that it has yielded probably some of the most value over the time since, you know, business has been around, it's really the corporations, right? Product development. We have CPG companies, we have B2B, you know, companies that are generating new products and they turn into divisions that eventually spin off, right? And so what corporate America or corporations have done, I think, really well is they've built an innovation template. And that template, if you abstract it, becomes the foundation of the process for a factory floor, right? And if you treat, if you treat innovation as a factory state, we have six stages in our manufacturing process, right? And each of those stages have different attributes to them. And so, so what we've done is we've, we've, We've taken from corporate, 
And we've said, here's the manufacturing process for creating not one, but creating companies at scale. Second thing we've done is we've harnessed, I think, quite effectively the ambitions, resources, and creativity of our LP base, our advisors, and our investors. You know, these are all accredited investors who are successful in their own right. And frankly, have the ambition to contribute in part or whole to the creation of these particular companies. And yet they've done crazy things like build a family, right? Or, you know, and so the risk associated with super early stage, which is where we exist, is, um, is not something that, that they can work with. So our innovation pipeline really comes from our LP base. We don't interview entrepreneurs. Um, we're, we're creating our own ideas and running them through a pretty ruthless vetting process to get them out into the world. And what we get by doing that is 100% equity at zero valuation, which is profound. And by the time we get to the end of our six-stage process, then we have anywhere between 80% ownership in that company at you know, a terminal value of you know, six to 10 million, right? For, for a post-revenue MVP. And we get control of the process all the way through. So when I say factory, it's not just you know, a, a process flow. There are vendors, partners, and employees set up at each stage of the process to deliver the right resource and skill at the right time and at the right dollar. <laughs> so our capital efficiency is, is significant and, um, and we, can, we can get these companies out the door pretty quickly in, in our various sectors. I think the other thing that's really different is we're not a venture fund. We are an operating company. And so what we've done is taken, I think, the best elements of what does it mean to create a company, to be that founder, that, that you know, 11.2 is a, is a group of founders, right? We're an operating company. The tried and true proven methodology for managing equity and, and that comes from venture capital. And then the toolkit to go out and, and really move forward the exit of a company through private equity and investment banking. So in the traditional view, what we've done, the way 11.2 is structured, is we have the obviously the goal to build the companies, scale them, and exit them. Those three processes generally take you know, nine to 15 years, depending, right? And you can argue duration if you want. But what if you did those in parallel? What if you could build a company and structure the acquisition immediately while that company was in progress? If it takes 12 months to build and you can do a roll-up so that those things come together at the end of 12 months, what does that do, right? And so as we've thought of the process innovation around build, scale, and exit and doing them in parallel, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's pretty exciting where we are with seeing it work versus seeing it, you know, bravery. I heard, I'm fond of saying this. I don't know who I should quote, but bravery is the stupid stuff you do that works. <laughs> so I think we're getting there. I love that quote. I might make that the episode highlighter quote line. Um, 
So for these companies that you are taking from ideation to MVP to revenue, how many are currently in the portfolio right now going through that process? Um, and is there a common theme throughout you know, all of them in terms of technology you're focusing on or, or how you guys are crafting these, these companies from scratch effectively? Sure. So we've identified five vital you know, human condition um, areas that are sectors that are non-correlated. And as we look at, you know, life sciences, smart manufacturing, agriculture, uh, fintech, and oh, clean energy, um, those would be the five areas that we're focused on uh, building companies in. And then every single company uh, has an artificial intelligence underpinning. Right now, we've got three areas, econometrics, which is really just, you know, the ability for the software to think and process all these different inputs that it gets. We have computer vision, which is everything from, you know, how, how can essentially software experience the world uh, visually in the same way that we do at scale? And then natural language understanding and processing and generation, which is how does it read and talk <laughs> at scale, or maybe not talk at scale, but, uh, but, but think about the words that are read, right? And with those three as the underpinnings, what we found is, you know, we have the, the each of those five sectors are really fertile for disruption, disruption or accretive businesses that are, that are helping some, some processes. And what we've also found is, you know, uh, a huge amount of efficiency when it comes to focusing on these core platforms. You know, we build an innovation once and it only costs us, you know, 50 cents to build it the second time and reapply it, right? You know, and there's this convergence of applicability uh, across the five sectors and the AI platforms, right? They kind of just do the same thing except with different purposes in each of these five sectors. So those are the focal foci. Focuses? Focuses. Foci, I like foci. We're going to go with foci. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I kind of love that idea of, it's almost, um, it's almost like economies of scale to innovation. You know, as you keep doing it, you're actually getting better and better and, and hopefully creating this kind of flywheel effect that you can just take the next idea and really run with it. Uh, and scale quicker. What what's it like for you though and your team members? I'd imagine you have days where you go from, you know, operationally dealing with a post revenue company and, and trying to figure out, you know, its go to market strategy or or you know key hires it may need to make or very pragmatic kind of concerns around the day to day operations. And then in the next meeting, you're I would imagine having brainstorming sessions or ideating about potential future business opportunities and, and and sort of going through just I would imagine deep sort of you know brainstorming sessions with your partners. Is that kind of the workflow or how does that I guess work from a day day basis what is that like well so we're getting division of labor in the team right i mean there's no there's it, um because to do what you to experience what you experience what you just outlined is definite whiplash it's cognitive dissonance on a, a significant level which is great right some would call that exciting others would call it chaos right 
So what we have is sector leaders who are responsible for each of the different uh, verticals. Um, and then we have horizontal leaders who are responsible for each of the different functions. And if you think about this literally, literally as an effectiveness matrix, then you know we're innovating on a sector. And then we've got the, the horizontals who are figuring out, well, how do you take that and, and make it move forward? And, and, and so with that as the organization of our cognitive, you know, capacity, um, that that's been a pretty good way to organize it. Um, I would say one of the more curious things that I didn't really expect to see coming is just like, where do you put all this stuff? Right. So organizing, whether it's teams or Google's or, or any of these software applications that are out there, like they're all just so imperfect and they fit they fit a file cabinet structure. They don't fit an innovation structure, which um, could be an opportunity, <laughs> right? Absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm curious now about the, the choice to go and raise external funding. How does that decision get made? Um, because you have 100% of the company throughout its life cycle until you decide to give some of it up for external funding. Um, and like you said, you're not a venture capital fund per se. So, so at some point, I would imagine you're going to need to raise external financing to get it from, let's say, you know, seed to series A or, you know, whatever those definitions mean in 2021. Um, how do you guys view that sort of decision to take on outside capital? Great question. So the, we are an operating company that externally acts very much like a venture firm. So we're taking in the capital to fund operations and the LPs get, instead of, you know, a, a traditional model, they get a hundred percent, they get whatever ownership stake they, that 11.2, the mothership has in all of these different portfolio companies. And so because we've structured it that way, um, 100% of the equity or the, the capital that comes in drops right down into value creation. So, you know, our organization, we have operating expenses, but those operating expenses, because we're all operators, drop into the companies and are allocated out to those companies. We have, uh, we have some carry, but it's not the, the typical, you know, venture carry, which isn't to say ventures, but like everyone's got to make a living. Right. And, um, and it's just, when you think of this as a factory, everything in a factory in a manufacturing plant, what you don't want is for that to, to my, my ringer off here. Uh, what you don't want is for that to go, um, to overhead. Right. And so to have everything go to the machining and creation and value and a customer acquisition, um, in that, in that, uh, process for creating these companies is, is really, is really the way that we've, we've chosen to, to go to market. And you mentioned your team a couple of times and your partners, how, how did you all go about finding each other? You know, how, is it a team of all ex operators, uh, or were you all sort of at companies together beforehand? How did this team really come together? Sure. So the founding team, uh, Gary Shire, myself and, and Dimitri Balbi, um, you know, we had, we had circled each other for a handful of years. And then as I had progressed one of my earlier companies, then it became a platform for pulling us all together. Um, then we have, you know, our executive board, which we had met 
through just the, the course of doing business. And they um, all gravitated towards the vision of 11.2. And then our LPs and our, our board of advisors, the ones who are either generating companies, helping them get to the market or helping in certain, you know, tasks or processes or stages, um, you know, it, this shouldn't be creation, shouldn't be dry and dull. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It should be as exhilarating as that word actually sounds, right? And so this is a pretty exciting sp space. So at, at first it was, you know, the network effect, right? The founders going and just talking to people, right? But now we've had, um, we've had to our, you know, I'm highly grateful that we have people reaching out to us saying, hey, you got to meet this person or I'm going to put point this person in your direction. So as the excitement and the word and the gravitas has, um, has grown or increased, um, the team has expanded as well. Right. And it's a very particular mindset. Um, you know, it, it, it very much is about creation and about operating a company and knowing, you know, when a dollar comes in, what is that dollar worth? What does that dollar get us in terms of something and, and, and is that something what the, what the customer or the company needs at this exact moment to make it to the next level. And do you look around kind of the landscape in 2021 of venture capital funds and venture builder studios? Do you, do you see more of a rise of the model behind 11.2? Do you think there are more and more venture stu studios, you know, uh, uh, you know, getting built around, around the you know, early stage ecosystem today? I think it's a new concept. And I think it's conflated with accelerator incubator um, and, you know, and, and so I think there's um, a wariness from investors. There's three things, I think, a wariness, a skepticism, um, and a uh, not done this way, right, type of thing. I don't know what to call that third thing. You know, the wariness is, look, we all just took uh, psychological, social, and economic, um, you know, joyride last year. And uh, with everything from COVID to a couple trade wars to, you know, uh, uh, an election cycle. And then, so coming out of it, there's a reframing of what do we want? What, what do we as individuals, as LPs, as companies, what do we want? And how are we going to make our way in this post-COVID world? I, and, you know, we talk about the new normal and it's kind of glibly thrown about. I was at an airport the other day and I, I met uh, a I met a guy and we were just chatting and it turns out he was in private equity and he had a Mac and he pulls out this screen. I'm like, what is that? He's like, yeah, I carry this around because sometimes my Mac isn't, you know, just big enough. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. You win and I'm jealous. Um, but then I thought, wow, holy cow, he's probably an early adopter in this whole Mac or in this whole additional portable screen thing. Like who would have thought, right? And and so the ways, and that's not really a profound example, but that's one of those little examples that are part of this massive recontextualization around, you know, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think there, there is also, you know, um, 
you know, micro PE, micro SaaS, these new kind of takes, these new models on early stage investing. How, do you do you see that as sort of complementary to what you guys are doing? Is it is it an example where in some situations maybe companies that you you all originate and you create could be potential acquisition targets for a micro PE firm or you know or viewed as micro SaaS? Or is the goal for you? you know, really uh, later stage, you know, more of an exit, strategic ex- acquisition, IPO. How do you view that sort of world of micro P and micro SaaS? Well, so we're looking at creating 50, com- 50 core companies and 20 to 40 joint ventures and then making, you know, 30 plus um, traditional venture investments. That would all be accretive to one of our JVs or one of the port codes or one of the AI platforms, right? And when you think about how to execute and operationalize that intention, then we have essentially, when you get into a hundred investments projects, then you have to figure out how to manage those. And we've chosen bond ladders math. So we're looking at duration. We're looking at an incremental value increase as a coupon for each company through the manufacturing stage. And what that gives us is the ability to be mathematically opportunistic so we can, you know, and, and I think just to go back a step, when a company is created, no one knows if it's a company or a product. And a lot of the mythology around how many companies fail is because so many of them were just great products, but they got to a series B or a series, whatever it is. And they ran out of gas, not because there was anything fundamentally wrong, but because they had become too expensive to sell because they were not a company, they were a product. And another big co would have loved to have them augment their portfolio, but they're just too expensive. And so they, they kind of, from a capital structure, die on the vine. Well, if you own the 80% of that company and you know where it sits in your overall 100 plus you know, investments um, as a portfolio, as a non-correlated portfolio that looks at duration and value and all that stuff, then you can say, yeah, you know what? This is great product. Let's sell it early, right? And then this other company, but if we do that and we're still trying for our, our target um, um, our target returns, well, then this other company over here, you know what? We need to hold on to that one. We can add 80% ownership. We can sustain a couple growth rounds. We can engage the investment bank part of our, our group and we can start like doing a roll up around that particular company. And, and it gets back to that, you know, build, scale and exit simultaneously in parallel. Um, that gives us that ability to be free, sell early or sell late and hold, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's that makes complete sense. And I think, again, this is extremely beneficial, I think, to a lot of listeners who have heard these terms getting thrown around and, and you know, they're maybe only used to the kind of original you know, blind pool of capital venture fund model that that has been the norm for for decades. And now it's just a pretty exciting time to see see all the kind of innovations that are going on between rolling funds and and venture builder studios and micro PE. Um, So I think it's just an incredibly exciting time. And it's also an incredibly exciting time, I think, to be in or around the Chicago ecosystem, which is where I know you've been sort of around since, you know, maybe going back to your, your MBA and maybe before that. So I'm curious about kind of your view overall on the Chicago ecosystem and, and what it's been like to sort of build businesses here and, and invest in companies or start companies here. Well, so there's a lot of statistics out there which support um, how great 
Chicago and, and by extension, the Midwest is for, you know, the profitability of the companies, the exits and all of those things. And it's confounding to me how, with you know, all of the industry and the financial gravitas that we have here, let alone a couple of good schools or not a couple, but, you know, a handful of really good schools, everything from the Art Institute to, you know, the the Northwestern Chicago, DePaul, Loyola. I mean, the, the list goes on. University of Illinois, University of Illinois, Chicago, right? I mean, it's like, what is going on here? And the cost of living is so low. You know, what's going on that 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 we're just not at least superficially getting the same level of love that the coasts are getting, right? One of my board members. Um, had had given me this really interesting uh, and I thought pretty cool view. Like on the East Coast, they have institutional betting. On the West Coast, they have speculative betting, right? It, it ingrained, right? Institutional betting was like this. All the markets were started on the East Coast, and you know, last time I checked, all the people who went and thought they could be the one to find the gold in the hills, like that's a speculative DNA as you can find. And if you want to get something built, you come to the Midwest, right? And I'm like, well, that's that's almost a backhanded compliment, right? There's so much infrastructure here that I think is not being used or not being viewed or, um, and so I'm really opportunistic or not op- op- optimistic about just what we can do here, especially coming out of, uh, I think, a cycle where people the communities are looking for new innovations. And I think, I think when you look at the research funding of all the combined schools in Chicago um, and, and the communities, you know, I mean, like, let's not forget, we have things like Fermi labs, like what city has Fermi lab, <laughs> like none, you know? And so there's all this stuff that we're just somehow we gloss over. I don't know. So I see the, the, the short answer to your short question is, um, huge potential, huge potential here. Any kind of strategic thoughts about, you know, what, um, actually I'll re I'll, I'll rephrase that question. Um, a- any actions you think, or any things you would like to see in the coming decade that you think will help Chicago live up to its potential, you know, aside just from more companies getting started here, I suppose, any kind of, you know, larger initiatives you think that could take place or changes in mindsets? Yeah. You know, I think with um, with what is coming in terms of transportation, in terms of data storage, in terms of infrastructure, right? We are now looking at the need for you know there are there are big giant holes in our wireless infrastructure, right? So to make sure that we become a little bit over over um, over capacity in our ability to absorb the ability of, you know, the basics of where, what, what a company needs to grow. Right. So being the heart of the internet, you know, we had May East, May West, we have huge internet hubs here in Chicago, but really beefing those up so that we can be that nexus point. Um, when we look at power grids, you know, water supply, good grief. Um, and then we look at, you know, the mobile infrastructure, uh, you know, M- MCI, and I mean, we've had some just fabulous telecom companies that are here, and, and or that that originated in in Chicago, Chicago land. You know, why aren't why aren't we dominating from at least an infrastructure 
perspective. And so to have those base things really beefed up um, would, would I think be just fabulous for, for what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that's spot on. Um, and I think that that echoes uh, some, some, some other comments made here on the show about, you know, what the ecosystem can do specifically. Um, I guess that leads almost a little bit into, you, you mentioned, you touched on a few, but industries in which you think Chicago uh, could really become, you know, a, a worldwide leader, or at least a leader in North America. So, you know, if I'm a founder in food tech or logistics or, or Chicago would be the place that I need to go in 10 years to start a company, anything you see as potentially, you know, taking on that mantle in the next decade? Well, you know, it's hard for me to say because the companies are so distributed now, at least what with what 11.2 is doing. And when I look at, you know, how multinationals are taking advantage of centers, centers of implicit centers of excellence, right? They're doing what I think Chicago should be doing or should be considered for, which is if you're into R&D, if you're into, you know, the fundamentals of business, if you're into, I mean, like, look, at, again, our anchor point is education and from education flows the ability to take those creative thoughts and operationalize them through education, right? Through the know-how. And so I think, I think as a, as a marketer of, of our people, of our students, of our resources, of our thought leadership, I think there's something, you know, really big. You could, you could go down the list and, and rank by, you know, by revenue, what the industry sectors are. I mean, there are some things that are, you know, competent that were really, really our core competencies of Chicago. And when you think about, you know, just what, what has been ingrained in the city, the practical application of trans of transportation. Um, and, and I mean, the, the list goes on. I think we're a pretty good Renaissance city um, when it comes to, you know, diversification. But it's the education that I think we should be marketing. It's like all of the good, the good talent and, and resources and creativity here um, that are still at a, at a discount to the coasts. It's a little bit colder during the winters, but a lot cheaper throughout the rest of the year. Absolutely. I mean, there, there you go. There's your sales point. Um, <laughs> I, I, a, a question I kind of was curious about, and I wanted to, you know, as, as we, as we wrap up, you know, you, you, Throughout your career, you know, again, going back to the authoring um, uh, of the books you you wrote, I mean, you pursued a side passion. And I think in today's society and, you know, coming out of COVID, but just with the launch of so many consumer facing tools that allow people to really hone into their passion and what they want to do as almost a side hustle. I mean, you know, we're doing a podcast right now. People are using Substack. People, people are finding all these interesting and innovative ways now to, to spend their you know time outside of their day-to-day -day functions. For you, how did you find a balance in your professional life between, you know, writing and, and, you know, using your creative side of your brain and, and still, you know, running companies and, and, and acting as a, you know, as, as an investor, how did that balance work for you over the years? Well, in, in the context of the way that I'm thinking, you know, I think in terms of protagonists and what does it mean to be your own protagonist in your own story, in your own narrative, Right. Do you have that? Like, what what is interesting about the, the story and the journey and and not necessarily to other readers, but to yourself and to build that that 
that portfolio of things, which is a really dry word to build, to build those interests that get you out of bed, that make you stay up a little later or make you go to bed earlier so that you can get up and do it tomorrow. You know, those are the things that I think keep us alive. You know, when, when we look at, and I'm probably going to get it wrong when I throw some of these science, quasi science things out there. But when we look at obesity statistics, I think regardless of public health, what it says is, you know, survival through caloric intake isn't that difficult anymore. And so why? Right? What is that thing that unites, you know, what is that thing that makes makes an individual say, wow, I'm, I'm writing a pretty good book about myself. Like when I pass and go wherever, my kids are going to love this story, right? Or heck, you know, I'm just loving it right now. And so um, that, that openness to challenge oneself to say, you know, okay, great. I'm really competent at doing this one thing. Like I'm really good at financial analysis and that may be the thing that I want to devote 80% of my time to, but what are some of the other things that would, that would make me excited about going to bed or getting up or staying up late, right? Like those are, those, those, those I think are really must haves. Um, and I don't think we're, I think specialization teaches us the good news about it is teaches us hyper-focus, but with blinders on, we're missing out on so many of the cool things that are out there. I think it's such a great way of putting it. And this entire conversation has been one of my favorite to date. I think there's so many interesting threads we hit on and, you know, we dove into a lot more than just venture capital investing. Um, so Kurt, I have you to thank for that. Thank you so much for jumping on Chicago capital. This was absolutely fantastic. And I know listeners are going to get so much out of this episode and we just cannot wait to have you back in the future. Well, thanks Matt and appreciate it. And, uh, glad to be here and, and thanks for thinking of me. Take care, Kurt.